Kids, I wonder if you're a little bit afraid as you think about Russia's illegal war on Ukraine, as you think about the invasion of Ukraine. If so, your fear, I think, is understandable. It's scary to think about the evil things that some people do to other people. It's sad when leaders use their positions of authority and power to harm people rather than to protect people. And I think what we'll talk about this morning in Exodus 7 and 18 will bring you some comfort and some clarity and instruction. What we'll see this morning is that God stands above every human leader, every leader that exists in creation. That's what we'll see in these three stories that we've just read portions of from Exodus chapter 17 and Exodus chapter 18. God is the one who's in charge of every leader. In these stories, in this section of Exodus, God is helping the people to turn up from looking at Moses as their deliverer to look at God himself as their deliverer. And all three stories that we see this morning follow that same theme. God stands above bad leaders who do horrible things to innocent people. And God also stands above good leaders who sometimes do bad things, like a parent who speaks impatiently, or a teacher or coach who treats you unfairly. Even good leaders can sin against us because good leaders are sinners like you and me. Teenagers and adults need this comfort from God as well, because sometimes coaches and professors can act badly. Sometimes bosses or spouses can act sinfully. Sometimes governors and presidents can act recklessly. People in authority, even pastors, can sometimes use that authority to hurt people rather than to protect people. And in moments like these, when leadership is misused, we need to hope in God who stands above every leader. A God who is at work delivering us and protecting us and preserving us in every situation. A God who never stops fulfilling his purposes never stops fulfilling his purposes in creation, taking care of his people and calling all the earth to worship him. So how do we hope in God? We'll see three ways to do that this morning. The first is in chapter 17, verses 8 through 16. Look to him expectantly. As you heard Becky read, Israel is in camp this morning at Rephidim. This is where they were camped last week as we looked at the beginning of chapter 17. Up until this point of Israel's journey, God has protected them from human enemies. There's been no army that's come out to face them other than the Egyptian army. But this morning, the Amalekites come to Israel. And in the future, in Deuteronomy 25, Moses will write about this event. And he says this, Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt, how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary, and cut off your tail those who were lagging behind you, and he did not fear God. It's not merely that Amalek attacks the people of Israel. It's that Amalek targets the weakest of the people of Israel. Those who are lagging behind the train of people that God is leading. He attacks the vulnerable element of the people of Israel. And Moses calls on Joshua to assemble an army and to meet this threat from the Amalekites. While Moses himself will take the staff of God and go up on top of the hill. Now, why does he take the staff of God? The staff of God represents God's presence and power among the Israelites. Where God's staff is, 
God acts. And so Moses takes the staff and goes to the top of the hill. Look at chapter 17, verse 10. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek, while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed, and whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, and so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and one on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun, and Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Now, what should Israel walk away from this battle believing? Was it Joshua who delivered them? Was it Joshua swinging his sword on the battlefield who delivered Israel? Or was it Moses up on the hill with the staff of the Lord up in his hand? Was Moses the one who delivered God's people? Now, Israel should have seen that God himself was their deliverer. As Moses raises his hands to heaven on the hill, God grants Israel advantage in the battle. And as Moses' hands grow weary on the hill and they begin to fall, Amalek prevails in the battle. And so where are the eyes of Joshua's army during this battle? They begin to see very quickly that the power and the advantage in this battle does not come from the battlefield itself. They begin to look at Moses Moses, who when his hands are lifted high, give them, gives them the advantage in the battle. And when his hands grow weary, they lose the advantage in the battle. And so their, their eyes are on Moses on the hill. But what's Moses doing on the hill? Moses' hands are stretched to heaven with the staff of God. Moses is looking to heaven. So as they look to Moses, they see their leader looking to God. God is the one who delivers them from the Amalekites. And the fact that Moses needs help from Aaron and from her reinforces this point. Moses is frail. Moses is weak. Moses cannot deliver them on his own. Even in his weakness, even in his need for others, Moses demonstrates that he's not the deliverer. That he acts on behalf of the deliverer. That it's God who grants the victory. It's God who brings the protection. And this is why plurality and leadership, that is multiple leaders, even in the life of a local church, is so important and why it's the preferred leadership model in the church. We gather around Jesus's leadership and personality, not human leadership and personality. You see, Israel has put too much hope in, God, in Moses. Every time they run up against scarcity, they blame Moses. And Moses tries to tell them, it's not me, it's God who's leading us. It's God who's providing and putting us in these situations. And Israel will begin to learn as Moses depends on God, as Moses, they have that visual of Moses on the mountain, holding his hands up, looking to God for rescue. That's where their deliverance comes from. Now God wants Israel to remember this victory, and so he has Moses, write this down in a memorial book that's recited in the ears of Joshua in particular. You see, Joshua, in 40 years, is going to lead the people of Israel into the land of Canaan. Joshua will be one of two adults still alive at that time who will need the courage to lead God's people 
to defeat the Canaanites. And he will need to remember this image of Moses on the hill because that will tell him and that will remind him where the power will come from when they attack and defeat the Canaanites. Moses also builds an altar. And he calls the altar, the Lord is my banner. Just a vague military term. What he's intending here is God is the one around whom we gather. It's God who's collected this people and it's God who fights for us. And so he is our banner. And then there's this odd phrase that no one agrees about that says his hand is on the throne. Nobody can figure out whose hand this is, but we're pretty sure it's God's throne. Now, I think it's just a similarity to what's come before. God is our banner. Our hands are on his throne. He's the king. We're taking our instruction and direction from him. The church, we need to look to God expectantly. Don't look primarily to human leaders, even good human leaders, when the pressure is up in your life. Of course, God gives leaders as good gifts. This isn't a judgment on good leadership. God raises up Moses in order to deliver God's people from Egypt. But the call to us is not to look to leaders ultimately for our deliverance, but to look expectantly to God who stands above them all. In Psalm 146, verse 3, the psalmist writes, Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth, and on that very day his plans perish. Blessed is he whose help is in the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, and earth and the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations. Praise the Lord. Look above the good human leaders in your life to God who stands above them. Are you sick? Hope in God who stands above the doctor. Have you been wronged? Hope in God who stands above the judge. Have you been mistreated? Hope in God who stands above your boss. Are you vulnerable? Hope in God who stands above any husband or father. Good leaders are a blessing. Good leaders will fail us. We need to look to the God who stands above all leaders and look to him expectantly. The second way we hope in God practically is to trust him entirely. We look to him expectantly and then we trust him entirely to deliver on his terms at his time. The second story this morning is a conversation between Moses and his father-in-law Jethro. Jethro is a priest of Midian. We don't know if he's a worshiper of God at this point or not. But we do know that Moses sends his wife Zephora and their two sons back to his father-in-law for protection, we think. And in verses 1 through 6, we learn that Moses and Zephora, we learn of their faith as we look at the naming of their two sons. Gershom, for I've been a sojourner in a foreign land, that is the land of Midian. Eliezer, for the God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword. Word spreads 
to Jethro and Midian that God has been faithful to Moses and to Israel. And so Jethro makes his way to Israel's camp. Look at verse 7 of Exodus 18. Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. Then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake. All the hardship that had come upon them in the way and how the Lord had delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel. In that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. And Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with all the people. Now in these brief verses, God is named the deliverer five times. Four times God is the deliverer from the hand or the sword of Pharaoh or Egypt. And the final time he's just the, the, the deliverer from all hardship. We can't stumble past the point. God is the one who delivers. And as deliverer, God can rescue from every adversary. God has rescued Israel from the strongest nation on the earth. And therefore, God can rescue from any lesser nation. God has rescued Israel from the hand of arrogant Pharaoh, the greatest, most powerful leader on the earth. And if God can rescue from arrogant Pharaoh, then God can rescue you from any other leader. See, God doesn't just stand above good leaders who sometimes do bad things and fail us. God stands above arrogant leaders like Pharaoh. But Jethro takes the point a step further in verse 11. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods. Jethro understands the reality that God in the 10 plagues humiliates the so-called gods of Egypt. He detects correctly that there's a spiritual battle happening behind the scenes in Egypt. God's power isn't just over arrogant human leaders like Pharaoh, but even the spiritual forces that stand behind arrogant leaders like Pharaoh. There's an invisible spiritual battle raging around us even now. And this isn't to scare us. It isn't to wrongly preoccupy us. But we have to realize that behind the arrogant leaders of this world are spiritual powers of evil darkness. In Ephesians 6 verse 12, for example, Paul says, We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers. That is against those who don't have flesh and blood. Over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And here's the point though. God can deliver us from any adversary. Powerful nations like Egypt, arrogant leaders like Pharaoh, and all the spiritual forces of darkness that stand behind them. Why? Because God stands before his adversaries. He stands above his adversaries. He exercises effortless power to deliver us from every adversary. Do your circumstances seem impossibly hard this morning? Or do your circumstances feel unbearably protracted? Church family, trust him entirely. I see some of what you're up against. I don't know why God has brought it to you, and I don't know why God is not lifting it away from you. 
But no matter the adversaries, the forces that stand against us, whether they be human or spiritual, they cannot act unless the Lord allows. He is fulfilling his purposes in every painful circumstance. It's God who points out Job to Satan in the book of Job. It's God who says, have you seen my servant Job? God is not responding to Satan's devices. God is standing above Satan. The people of Ukraine can hold on to this truth this morning, and so can you. In Acts chapter 17, we read that God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth. God is the creator of all human beings. Having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling places, he's not just the creator, he's also sovereignly determining the allotted periods, that is the length of time they will live, and the boundaries, the places where they will dwell. Why is he doing this? For what purpose does God create us and sovereignly orchestrate our times and our places? What is he doing? What's the end goal? Acts 17, 27, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. This is what we should be praying for in the situation in Ukraine. That as all eyes are turned on Eastern Europe, that God would bring glory to his name and that hundreds and thousands and millions of people would turn and trust Christ. God is moving peoples and he always moves peoples for these purposes. God is directing our times and places so that we would seek him. And yet, he is actually not far from each one of us. He wants to be found. He wants to call us to worship him. George Matheson was a 19th century Scottish minister and hymn writer. And when he turned 17, he suddenly lost his sight. And when his fiancée found this out, she ended the relationship with him. Years later, he's ministering and he's writing hymns and he's writing prayers and he writes this prayer. Restore my soul, O God. There are green pastures around me that my eyes have no lens to see. There are quiet waters beside me for which my ear has no cord. There are green pastures in the midst of this that I can't see. And there are quiet waters beside me that my ears cannot hear. God, restore my soul. There's mercy in the moment. He goes on, the place that I call dreadful is even now the house of the Lord. In the middle of this pain and hardship, George Matheson says, this is the house of the Lord. The Lord is dwelling inside of me. The Spirit of God is with me. Therefore, this dreadful place is also the house of the Lord. And so, may I be content and at peace to know that your goodness and mercy shall follow me. It shall come in my wake. It'll, it'll come behind me without waiting to see them in advance of me. What's he saying? I don't need to see how the goodness and mercy is in front of me. I don't need to see how you're working in my circumstances. It's enough to trust 
that you've committed that goodness and mercy will come after me. No matter the circumstances, I'm trusting that what will follow is goodness and mercy. And whether you're a Ukrainian on the run to the West, or whether you're sitting in a circumstance right now where you have leaders over you and feel like your life is a bit out of control, know that God stands above every human authority and spiritual authority in your life. And he's doing something. He's allotting our times and the places where we dwell so that we might know him and so that the world might know him through us. Trust him entirely. And the third point and final one is obey him earnestly. Obey him earnestly. Chapter 18, verses 13 to 27. This third story takes place the very next day. Moses gets up in the morning and he goes and sits in his place and he judges the people from morning till evening. And like a good father-in-law, Jethro follows him and sees what he's doing throughout his day. And in verse 15, Jethro is watching and he wants to know why Moses is doing this. And in verse 15, Moses responds to his father-in-law. Because the people come to me to inquire of God. That's why I'm sitting here all day. The people are coming to me. They want to know what God thinks. When they have a dispute, they come to me and I decide between one person and another and I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. That's why Moses is sitting before the people all day. They're coming to him. They want to know what God thinks about their disputes and about their circumstances and about their confusion. And Jethro's concerned and he offers a word of counsel. And even in the offering of counsel, Moses is being regulated to mere human stature. He has a father-in-law who's in authority over him, who gives him instruction, and he listens. Even in this, God is showing the people to come to him as their deliverer. In verses 19 to 23, we find out what Jethro wants Moses to do. Obey my voice. I will give you advice, and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God, and you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moses, your job is to take the needs of the people to the Lord and then to come back from the Lord to the people and share God's heart with the people. It's formative discipline. You're teaching and instructing about God's heart. And then... Look for able men, verse 21, from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy, who hate a bribe, and, who, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. And if you do this, God will direct you, and you will be able to endure and all this people also will go to their place in peace. You teach the people God's heart and then raise up faithful leaders who will look at God's law, look at God's commands and look at the people's disputes and help apply God's word to God's people. Moses, raise up other leaders who can do this with you. And as the leadership mantle is distributed, God takes a primary role because the people are gathered not around Moses, not around Moses' wisdom and leadership. They're gathered around God's word. They're gathering around God's word and they're relating to God according to his word. This is why we share the pulpit at Cherrydale. We gather around faithful preaching, not a particular preacher. 
Because we want to hear God speak to us. We want to hear God talk and reveal his heart to us. We want to live according to his word. That's what we gather around. And so Moses teaches God's people the word, and these other leaders judge God's people according to God's word. And these leaders don't have authority outside of God's word. These leaders aren't making up their own rules. They're tethered to God's word. If they outrun God's word, then they've outrun their authority. They're tethered and anchored to God's word. Church, when the pressure's up, we long for help. We long for direction. We long for counsel. We long for good news from other people. And the presence of others in hardship is good. Wise counsel from others is good. But when the pressure's up in my life, I too often pick up the phone and call Nicole or pick up the phone and call a trusted counselor. Why? Because I'm not patient enough to wait on the Lord. Sometimes it takes longer to wait on the Lord. We've got to turn off the noise and we've got to sit quietly before the Lord and we have to open his word and listen carefully to what he's saying and how he's speaking and leading in a particular situation. But when we do that, we learn that there are paths of obedience that we may not have seen on first blush. We learn what obedience might look like in a situation like this, what shape faithfulness would take in this situation, how God's glory could could reign in this particular situation circumstance. And make no mistake, obedience is not drudgery. Obedience brings safety and rest and delight and satisfaction. It's why the psalmist says in Psalm 19 that the law of the Lord is perfect and revives the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. You will never regret Steps of obedience. They always bring delight in the end. Earnestly obey God who stands above every leader. Now as we move toward a close here, I want to draw our attention to Jesus on the night that he was betrayed. The night he's betrayed by Judas to the Jewish leaders, Jesus goes to a garden near Jerusalem, a garden that's familiar to him. And as they go out from the Last Supper, Jesus' soul fills with sorrow, and he begins to feel the impending doom of his suffering. In Matthew's Gospel, in chapter 26, we read this. Jesus said to the disciples, My soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, Jesus fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it's possible... Let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Now, here's what I want us to see in this desperate prayer. Jesus is exemplifying all three points of the sermon this morning. He's turning to God. He's trusting himself to God completely. And he's choosing obedience to his Father. All three of these things. As Jesus stares down 
The worst suffering that eternity has ever experienced. The worst suffering and that will never be repeated again in creation. Jesus will absorb the penalty of sin that we deserve. He will die in the place of sinners and he will consume all of God's wrath for us. But notice what happens after this prayer. Jesus stops kneeling. He comes to the disciples in verse 45 and says to them, sleep and take your rest later on. See the hours at hand and the son of man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And Matthew tells us that while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the 12, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Jesus is laid prostrate in the garden, begging for another way out. Sweating drops of blood, longing for a way to avoid the cup that he's about to drink. But in the end, not my will but yours be done. And he picks himself up off the ground of the garden and he rouses his disciples from sleep and he tells them it's time for us to go because my betrayer is at hand and he looks at the great crowd armed with lanterns and clubs and swords and he walks out to meet them and in John's gospel in chapter 18 John writes that Jesus knowing all that would happen to him came forward and said to the crowd whom do you seek And the crowd answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. And when Jesus said to them, I am he, the crowd, that is this great crowd armed with clubs and swords, drew back and fell to the ground. And Jesus answered, or Jesus asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am he, so if you seek me, let these men go. And this was to to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I've lost not one. He stands up from the garden to deliver his own. He faces the enemies, the Jewish leaders, the crowd that's in front of him, and behind them, the spiritual forces of darkness that are driving this whole train. And so in Colossians 2, verse 13, we read that you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. He stands for our deliverance. And having forgiven us all our trespasses, how? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This, all all the record of debt, all the legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And he disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. He stands for our deliverance. But what's he doing now? What's Jesus' posture now? In Hebrews 10, verse 12, when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, not like the priests who offered sacrifices repeatedly, when he had offered a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. 
For by a single offering, Christ has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. The crowd that's laid out on the ground before Jesus when he says, I am he, is a foretaste of every enemy of God who will be a footstool for Jesus' feet. He's no longer standing because he's victorious. He's already delivered us. He's, He's accomplished our victory. And so he's seated signifying the work is over. The sacrifice has been made. You're alive. You've been perfected. And one day every last enemy will be a footstool under his feet. The last enemy being death itself. Look above the leaders in your life to the one who actually sits above them. Whether it's a good leader who's failed you or a bad leader who is consistently doing evil, Jesus sits above them both. He's accomplished the victory. We just haven't fully experienced it yet. But one day, every enemy will be a footstool to his feet and we will fully and totally and completely experience his victory. Hope in God who sits above every human and spiritual authority. Lord Jesus, we thank you for how comprehensive and total and complete your work is. We're grateful for your death and resurrection, for your ascension to the Father, for the sending of your Spirit to dwell in your people, for the empowering of your Spirit that gives us the breath we need to proclaim the gospel to the very ends of the earth. And I pray that when we come up against human failings and leadership failures, that we would look to the God who sits above, who's already accomplished the victory. Lord Jesus, we pray these things in your precious name. Amen.